Good morning. My name is Adam, one of the pastors here at the church. Thank you so much for being here. We are continuing, as that song uh, kind of sings about, a series titled, I Won't Give Up On Us. It's a, it's a series on marriage. This is our second week. Uh, we're going to do it for six uh, total weeks, so we've got four more after this morning. Uh, what we're really talking about is the reality that if you're in this room and you're married... You do not want your marriage to fail. And when marriage does begin to fail and you begin to sense you're slipping a little bit and things aren't going well, it hurts. In fact, I've never met, and maybe you, you probably, your experience would probably echo this. Uh, have you ever been to a wedding and heard someone say, you know, in their vows, we're going to go for two years. We're shooting for 10. I mean, what do they say? Till what? Death do us part. I mean, and, and that's what we want. We want to grow old together. We want that romance. We want that fairy tale story happily ever after right off into the sunset. And that's what we crave and that's what we desire. So we're going to talk about marriage for the next couple of weeks. That's what we're shooting for. It's, that's, um, but the reality is that fairy tale, and we talked a little about this last week, um, though, we, though it's healthy to have romance and build that fairy tale in your marriage, it's not really um, what, what marriage is made of. Uh, matter of fact, Dennis Rainey, the, the well-known kind of family therapist, says it this way. Marriage isn't so much played out on a romantic balcony as much as it is a spiritual battlefield. It is glorious, yes, absolutely, but it's hard. It's a lot of work. It's not easy. Uh, and last week we talked about, just kind of review, we, we're going to kind of overarch the whole series with the word committed and friendship. And when we talk about committed, we aren't just talking about sticking it out. We aren't just saying, I'm going to get to 50 years and celebrate, or I'm going to, it's all about getting to 40 years. And, and it's all about, hey, we're still living together, but it's saying we aren't just going to stick it out, but we are going to be committed to growing healthy together. It's a togetherness. And friendship, meaning a face-to-face intimacy, a sitting and looking into one another. Intimacy, have you ever heard, um, it's a fun way to remember intimacy, into me, see. So that's really what we're going for, committed to looking into one another, sitting face-to-face, and kind of doing life together. Uh, now, just quick break, and I did this last week. If you're in this room and you say, I'm single, and I have no intention of being married, um, hang with us. Please hang with us, because the reason I'd say this Marriage in the Bible, when you really understand what the Bible says about marriage, it's often used as a picture of the relationship God wants with you and with me. And so when you really step back and you really look deep into the picture of how marriage is laid out and the beauty that it is, we begin to understand in a deeper way what he desires with us. Uh, more than that, you're also, all of us in this room, are a product of a marriage, Maybe your dad or your mom weren't there or you've never known them, but you're still the product of some type of, of something there in the home and that deeply impacts who you are today. So I think it's important to step back and say, what does the Bible call marriage to be? And then you can begin to say, well, this isn't what I had and it begin to really be a, a journey of healing and health for you. The question I've asked us to wrestle with too, this final thing I'll say we're going to jump into this morning. Um, the question I've asked, and I'm not going to give an answer to it. I want you to wrestle with this. Um, really wrestle with this one throughout the whole series. Is marriage more for your personal and my personal satisfaction and happiness, or is it more for my personal growth and holiness? Question makes sense? Is it more for, is, this, is the purpose of marriage for, to make me happy and satisfied, or is the purpose of marriage to help me grow and be holy? So that's, again, by the end of the series, I'm not going to give you a direct answer, but hopefully you've wrestled with what we've been talking about enough where you can begin to find that answer on your own. With that said, this morning, we're going to jump right in um, to the passage that we're going to be looking at. If you have your Bible, turn with me. I'm near the very back. It's in Ephesians is the name of the book where we're looking. 
if you're new to church, maybe this is a new experience for you. Maybe a friend invited you or you just found your way in, found us online, uh, whatever it may be. Uh, and you're not familiar with the Bible, uh, you might have one. Again, Ephesians is near the back. Uh, you'll see books around it, Galatians. You'll see books there, Philippians, um, words we probably don't use a lot in today's language. <laughs> and you'll find Ephesians there. If you don't have a Bible, see us afterwards. See me or see someone in the Welcome Center, and we will get a Bible in your hand. Or grab your smartphone. There is Wi-Fi here in the building, and you can find an app there and find Ephesians chapter 5. Now, Ephesians chapter 5, if you're going to study marriage in the Bible... This is one of the hallmark passages. Ephesians chapter 5 is probably the most extensive practical teaching on marriage. It's where you really get into what a man is, what a woman is, what a husband and wife is, um, how you work together, how the whole thing lays out. But I want to look at at a verse uh, that oftentimes gets neglected in this study of Ephesians 5. And look at verse 21. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 21. And it reads this. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay, pretty simple verse, right? I'm going to read it again. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, my, my hunch is if you can master and live out this verse, your marriage will be not perfect, not free of its ups and downs, but it will be a solid, healthy marriage. Matter of fact, what I'd love for us to do is actually put this one up on the screen and um, I have kids, and they're right now hanging out in, in an incredible children's ministry that's taking place in the building, and they encourage scripture memory, and when they memorize verses, um, they come home and talk to us about it. So I, especially those of you who have kids, I, I thought we could work in memorizing this as a group. So if those of you who have kids, you can go and say, hey, guess what? I memorized a verse today. Now, the only downside is those of you who have kids, they get prizes for memorizing. I have no prizes for you. You just get to pat yourself in the back and say, I memorized a verse. So let's say this together. Can we say this together? Ready? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Way to go. One more time. Then I'm going to take it off the screen. Actually, I'm not going to take it off the screen because that will bump me to the next slide. You can just shut your eyes. Ready? One more. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, turn and say it to the person beside you. Don't look at the screen. Don't look. I see some of you cheating. I see some of your peripheral vision in full view. <laughs> awesome. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, um, a lot of times it's interesting to me when we get into, if you've spent any kind of time in a Christian church that's talked about Ephesians 5, what we a lot of times talk about is what is a husband and what is his role and what is a wife and what is her role. And many of us know and are familiar with this passage, if, if you are at all, you know that it comes out and it says a husband is the head, a husband is to lead, a husband is to love. And then it says the wife, it doesn't use the direct language, but it calls her as a helper, it calls her as a support role, and it calls her to submit. And, and we get into this whole discussion, what does it mean to be a head, what does it mean to submit? And I, I find it interesting that we just kind of gloss over this very first verse that says submit to one another. Now, yes, there is authority in, in the marriage relationship. Absolutely. And next week we're going to dive headlong into that. Um, and we're going to get into what is a, what is a man's role? What is a, what is the wife's role? And, and how does all that work? But I'll, I'll say this mutual submission is what we're going to talk about today. It does not destroy the authority within a relationship, but what it does, it radically transforms that authority and what it looks like. 
So it's really important, I think, to understand, let's just start with the foundation, we're to submit to one another. Now, the, the interesting thing is the writer here, his name is Paul, and he actually, I think, gives us what this means and looks like. He gives it in the immediate context of the verses that lead into it, and he gives it in the context of the entire book of Ephesians. You really get an understanding of what this is. So I want to look at both of them. First, the immediate verses. Look with me at verse 18. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And some of you have maybe been around church a few times, and you you hear this, be filled with the Spirit. Be Spirit-filled, be Spirit-led, be Spirit, all this good stuff. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Well, back up. Paul gives us the definition. A lot of us don't kind of maybe miss this, but what does he compare it to? He kind of contrasts it with being what? Drunk. Now, so, okay, so let's talk. What does it mean to get drunk? If you have too much to drink and you get drunk, what happens? You lose control, right? The alcohol, the substance that has come into your body is taking control of you. So you no longer can what? Walk the straight line, put your finger in your nose, all other good stuff. I mean, it's out the window. You have lost control. No matter how bad you want to walk that line, you can't do it. Matter of fact, more than that, what alcohol does when when you get to that place of being drunk, don't you lose inhibitions? Look at all the celebrity fodder on TMZ that you capture where the, that drunk celebrities just spewed all this stuff out there. And then they come back in a sober moment and say, I didn't really mean it. Well, guess what? You know why they said it? It was deep inside of them. And alcohol rips back the inhibitions and it's what's in just comes spilling out and you get real free and real loose. And alcohol will make you be bold and do things that you may not do when you're sober. <laughs> so... You contrast that and say, what does it mean to be spirit-filled? Well, what it means to be, to be filled with the spirit is simply this, to be controlled by the spirit of God. To allow a substance, a person into your body to control you. And then so in the context of that, he's going to lead into submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, so I would say it this way. If I want a really healthy marriage and I want to do marriage well, I can't expect my marriage to work if I'm not spirit-filled and submitted first to him. So the goal is that the husband is submitted to the spirit, the wife is submitted to spirit. If you have a relationship where the husband is submitted and the wife is not, we're going to have a problem. If you have a relationship where the wife is submitted and the husband is not, we're going to have a problem. So again, it's saying we're going to be spirit-filled people, then mutually submit to the spirit and uh, move on. Now look at the next verse. This kind of leads into the verse 19 and 20, then kind of lead into the entire book. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Now, I want to pause right there. There's a cool marriage principle for you. (laughs) How many of you have ever done this one to really bring health and life to your marriage? Sing to one another. Have you ever done that? Now, we don't practice this one in our house. Um, I'll let my wife, who you met, she was up here singing. She can sing to me anytime she wants, and she can sing any song she wants. But on me, on the other hand, I don't think my wife, it's not going to really be a good, enriching marital moment if I sit down and I start singing to her, what's it say, hymns, spiritual songs. I mean, she's going to be like, whoa, what on earth? So again, it's interesting, though. Now, now, think about music, though. Think about music. Why music is one of those issues that churches get all worked up over is because music stirs the affections of the heart. Music is connected to the emotions. Music is connected to the part of me that feels, the part of me that experiences something. 
And so music, now look at what it says then. So keep that in mind. Sing to one another out of the affections of the heart. Look at what it says then in verse 20. Always giving thanks to God. So all of our music on this stage should be praising and giving thanks to God for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So give thanks to God for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul has done here now is he's opened up and kind of brought a summation to the entire book of Ephesians. Now, what I want to do, again, because verse 21 is not really, I think, grasp unless you grab the entire book. So in your, in your section there in your bulletin where you can take notes if you're a note taker, um, what I did this week, I didn't pull a commentary off the shelf or I didn't pull notes from a class I took. I just simply sat down in a real quick, real fast, and I encourage you to maybe try the same thing, and you may even pull some other things that I didn't. Just write down all the things that you have in Jesus The entire book of Ephesians is all about what you and I, if you're a believer in Jesus, what you have in Jesus. Okay, here's here's what the list is there for you. I just want to go through them real quick because I don't have time to read and go through the entire book. But chapter 1, you see a couple things. First one is you have every spiritual blessing. Everything you need to succeed in your spiritual life, you have in Jesus. Uh, Verse 4 of chapter 1, you have this reality that in Jesus, now this is a cool one, you are holy and you are blameless. So if you're a Christian person and you believe in Jesus, you you can say of yourself, I'm holy, I'm blameless. No matter what you did last night, no matter what you did this morning, you're holy and you're blameless. Now, you also see that in Jesus, you are adopted. God's brought you into his family. In Jesus, you have this glorious grace freely given. Now, the, the cool thing is, too, is I read through this. I just went back then, and, and all the superlatives, the big, fancy, excited words that, that is what a superlative is, that, that Paul uses, every glorious grace, freely given, great love is what you read later, immeasurably more. I mean, he just gets excited about what we have in Jesus. Now, in chapter 1, you see that in Jesus, you have forgiveness, you have redemption, you're bought. God, God's, God's given you his grace. In Jesus, he will make his will. God will say, so you say, what's God's will for my life? Well, it says in Jesus, he will make his will known to you. In Jesus, if you're in Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. It's a gift given to you. If you're in Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. You don't need, you may need to be controlled by him more, but you have him. In Jesus, this is chapter 2. In Jesus, it says, you were dead and you were objects of God's wrath. He was not very happy with you because you're a sinner. But in Jesus, his great love and mercy made you alive. I say this all the time. It's one of my favorite things to say. Christianity is not about obeying the rules and making bad people good. God did not come to this earth to say, I'm going to make this really bad person a good person. He came to make dead people alive. Dead people can't bring life to themselves. God comes to say, I'm going to bring you to life. So in Jesus, you're alive. You're, you're no longer dead. In Jesus, you were once far away from God. Chapter 2 continues, but now you're near, you're close. In Jesus, you have peace with God and you have peace with the law. The law that measures you, that you're going to stand accountable to, you're at peace with it. In Jesus, you can approach God with freedom and confidence, it says in chapter 3. If you're in Jesus, you can stand before God with bold confidence and freedom. In Jesus, it says in chapter 3, verse 20, you can do immeasurably more than I can ask or imagine. The prayers that you pray, and you say, God, help me to... Now, what, what God's saying... Just take that thing that you're asking for, and God actually wants to do 20 times that in your life. In Jesus, he's capable of doing that. Now, in Jesus, it says in chapter 4, if you are in Jesus, you have a gift given to you that's given to you to make a difference in a group of people called a church. 
Every single one of you has been given a gift. There isn't one of you sitting here, if you are in Jesus, that doesn't have something given to you that can make a big difference in a body, in a church. And then uh, the other one I'd end is chapter 5. It says, in Jesus, um, you are then dearly loved. I love it. So this whole picture of being in Jesus. So you come back to verse 21. Okay, so it says, submit to one another out of what? Reverence for Christ. The entire theme of the book is who you have, what you have in Jesus. Verse 18, that submit is this picture of being spirit-filled. Then sing and praise and let this overflow with songs, thanking God for everything you have in Jesus. And then it comes into this verse 21, out of reverence for Christ. So maybe a, a theological way to say it would be this. We are rich in Jesus. And if I am in Jesus, my identity is in Jesus. Okay, and then if you kind of step keep moving with that in a theological kind of context. I can't expect my marriage to go well if I'm finding my identity, who I am, or what I'm worshiping, where I find value in or of something other than Jesus. If I'm looking to something else to make me whole, something else to live for, something else to, to tell me who I am and that I'm okay and that I'm a success and that I'm accepted, if I'm looking to something other than Jesus for that, marriage isn't going to work well. In fact, let me give it one more, and this one might be the most memorable. And if, if you forget everything else I say, this, this next statement, I think, captures the heart of this entire message. Your spouse is not who you worship, but rather who you worship with. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And you say, well, yeah, I know I don't worship my spouse. Really? I want to challenge this. I want to share my own story in a minute, but I want to challenge this. When you get in the car to go home this afternoon... Either turn your satellite music on or flip to FM 97, The Rose, WIOV, or whatever other station that you might catch a pop love song on. And listen to the love songs that we sing and that mean something to us. And we sing and share and we claim them as this is our song. Listen to the language they use. Don't they a lot of times sing, I love you, and again, I, don't, I was going to play some of them for you this morning, but for sake of time. Don't they a lot of times captures, I love you with all of my heart. Who are you to love with all your heart? Your spouse or Jesus? So a lot of us don't, a lot of, when I write notes to my wife, I used to be real, when, when I was in Bible school, I was real strict with this. I would never say, I love you with all my heart. I'd say really nice things. I love you with most of my heart or, I, you know, I'm not, not totally living, but I want to convey, because I was, I was always going to be swacky with this. But I think about it, I look at some of the notes and the emails and the text messages that I send to my wife. They almost capture this picture of my all is wrapped up in you. And we do this so easily. Now, I want to share my own story, and to do that, um, I've actually asked my wife to be a part of this because some of you have heard parts of my story before, but I want to share a piece of my story that you've actually, I've never shared. Our elders know this story. When I candidated, I shared this with them, but I've never shared it in a public forum ever, let alone in a church service like this. And this, this concept is the concept that, that I was failing at, and it almost ended our marriage. I mean, we teetered on the edge of it. And so I've shared this kind of, you know, that our marriage, we hit a hard point in Charlotte. But, you know, I thought you've never heard it from Tanya. And so what I'd like to do is I want to ask my wife to take the stage. And um, I just want to share a part of our story uh, with you. But I want you to hear it from her perspective. Um, And I didn't force her to do this, right? I didn't force you. (laughs) She said, yes, I did. (laughs) 
Just kidding. I didn't force her to do this, but what I, what I want to do is just allow you to kind of hear our story from her perspective. Um, centered around a, an event that happened in Charlotte that I think my heart in this isn't to, to say, look what Adam and Tanya, but my heart in this is, please hear this. My heart in this is to just be very vulnerable with you to help you see how much, how passionately this principle, if you don't get down, you will find death in your marriage and you will hurt the people that you do not want to hurt your spouse. Guaranteed. So please just, I just want to share this with you. Um, it went like this. Um, Tanya and I, when we went to Charlotte, I went there. Um, I left a successful ministry. I didn't leave because I was running from something. I went because of an opportunity I had to go to something. And um, when I went down, I mean, I was going to work with uh, published authors and nationally known figures. And it was kind of exciting. And what I didn't realize, and this is what will kind of weave through this story. What I didn't realize is I love Jesus. I, was, I didn't realize I love <laughs> problem. <laughs> I said that serious. wrong. Okay. I love Jesus, but what I didn't realize, <laughs> she keeps it fun. <laughs> what I didn't realize is my identity. I was more concerned with the success of my ministry, making me who I am. In fact, when I left, I didn't tell a lot of people this, but I wanted to be a published author and a nationally known figure. And so I thought, here's my great chance. So a lot of what I was running towards was, was a greater picture of what I thought my identity was really in. As well as my identity was also wrapped up in my role as a husband and my role as a father. And again, career, husband, and fa- career and family are not bad things. But they are bad when they become the thing. And that's what they were to me. I didn't know. So less than three weeks into Charlotte, we're there for three weeks. And Tanya um, says to me one night after the kids get to bed, can we talk? And it was a hard conversation. And I, I just, again, this is where I'd love for you to hear it in her words. Um, just kind of what, what was on her heart and, and what transpired in that communication. Well, moving to Charlotte was a huge transition for, for us. Like Adam said, we weren't um, leaving an unsuccessful ministry. We left a ministry that we loved and that was flourishing and growing in order to do something that we felt called to do. And we, it involved obviously moving and we owned a home in Pennsylvania. We had three small children at the time that we accepted the position. They were three, two, and an infant. And this was major. And we thought we were hoping to be in Charlotte for the rest of our lives. That was the plan. That was the hope, the desire. And so because we had to put our house on the market and then move because it's a church plant and time is of the essence, yada, yada we had kind of put this plan together about how we would do that. So all that to say, this was a move that was at great personal risk to us. If our house didn't sell, if the church didn't fly or whatever. So when we had been candidating, can I I pause there real quick too? just so you aren't familiar with church planning, only 20% of church plants actually succeed in America today. So just, there's a lot that get planted, only 20% of them make it. So it, it was a big risk, big step. Thank you for sharing that. Yes, I know. know. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, oh, the wisdom. I'm getting something <laughs> here today. Um, so anyway, and of course, me as a mom, just wanting to make sure that our family is, of course, cared for. Not that he doesn't care, but you know what I mean. Um, so when we had candidated and actually gone and met the church and and met the people and that kind of thing, I felt really good about it, except for just like one or two areas. And they weren't deal deal breakers per se, 
But if they weren't addressed, it could be. And so I said to him when we came home after candidating, before we accepted the position, I said to him, you know, I, I feel really good about it except for these one or two things. And he said, yeah, I kind of saw that too. And I said, could you just look into that? So he made a lot of phone calls, talked to a lot of people that knew people and that kind of thing. And we got over and over and over, yeah, it's not a problem. It's not a problem. And we thought, okay, because we don't know. So we'll take your word for it. We trust you. These were godly people, leaders, and things like that. So we got down there, and within about a week, I realized this problem has not been taken care of. And if anything, it's a little worse than we were, when we were here before. And my wheels start kind of backtracking because this is a deal breaker if it doesn't get taken care of. And I, as much as I felt called to go there, I can't explain why God would do this, but not willing to stay if the church plant is not going to succeed. So I felt like we had a short window of opportunity, possibly, if we both agreed, that maybe we should just go ahead. We could probably get our old job back. And I wondered if we should do that. And that was a really hard thing for me because normally I would be very committed. And so I was just wondering, do we need to talk about this? And, um, yeah. So she comes to me and... um, (laughs) I'm not proud of this at all, uh, but, but it's, you know, deep in my heart, I, I know Ephesians 5, and I'm like, I'm the leader, I'm the head, submit to me, woman. Now, I, husbands, you know, you never say that to your wife, and those of you who have, shame on you, because you've probably experienced the wrath of your wife for good reason. Um, now, <laughs> so I wouldn't say that to her, but deep in my heart, I'm like, God called us to this. You will not get in the way of this. God's called us. We are going to stick this out, and we are going to make it happen. Now, fast forward nine months and a lot of conversation in between. We didn't just let this thing just disappear off the table. We had some tense conversation multiple times throughout, but I was immovable, and it was not a mutual submission at all. It was a this is what we're doing because thus saith Adam Nagel. Now, (laughs) I haven't read that one. (laughs) We'll memorize that this week. Um, so anyway, so nine months into it now, and, um, we had another conversation and, uh, this conversation was a turning point, um, in a very painful way for our marriage. So again, um, this is where it's, I think I just asked Tanya to be vulnerable and share kind of what she received and how she took uh, that conversation to go. Well, like Adam said, I did try to bring up the subject a couple more times, but by that point, I did kind of feel like we're committed and we need to try to do our best to make this work. And I really didn't know for sure if I was right, if I was really seeing what I thought I was seeing. And I was pretty comfortable at that point, just trying to make it work and doing the best that we could. When we had moved, we knew that it was a risk to put our house on the market and then move. So we were paying a mortgage in Pennsylvania and rent, which was actually 30% higher than our mortgage in uh, Charlotte. And we were not making very much at all. So we had put six months of savings aside before we moved to be able to make it. And that had long since run out. August was our six-month point, and that was gone. And we were not making it. And it was becoming more and more apparent to me that this church probably wasn't going to make it either. We hadn't grown and things like that. So, um, it was October and I decided that 
I've tried to kind of hint around about it the last couple months, but we need to really have a come to Jesus moment and try to talk about this. So I tried in the evening after the kids went to bed. And um, again, it was just met with, you know, we can put anything on the table but leaving, which isn't putting everything on the table. And I didn't know what to do. And so we were talking and I didn't, we weren't yelling at each other. I don't think it was nasty. Did you think it was nasty? And um, something happened that I just never saw coming that had never happened before and has never happened again since. But while we were talking, all of a sudden he pushed me across the dining room and I was very physically injured. And it was not fun. No, it was not fun. Um, the thing at that moment, what happened for us is, uh, for me, I'll speak for myself. I don't know about us necessarily at that moment, but I had never been a physically violent person ever. As a matter of fact, I would tell this story. Uh, when I played football, my uh, coaches, my off, I was an offensive lineman. An offensive lineman, they're, they're very strategic and logical, and they plan and map, and they go out and execute the play. Um, and sometimes they lack aggression, uh, you find. And a great offensive lineman's got to really go out and go at it. And my offensive line coach would be very frustrated with me because I wasn't an aggressive person. And so he'd have to work with me really hard at this. He'd say, Adam, you can be a gentleman off the field, but when you step onto this field, um, you need to be so mean that if your grandmother lined up across from you, you'd run her over. That uh, was the way he coached me. Sorry, grandma's in the room. I, I promise. More good advice this morning. <laughs> wow. Promise I won't run you over. So anyway, so I've, I've never been a violent person. And um, this was the kind of the first clue to me that you'd say, well, Adam, you should have known long before this. There was, there was plenty of road signs all along the road that were screaming. The dashboard lights have all lit up at this point. And there have been plenty of signs, but I missed them all. I was very much focused on this job needs to work because who I am is on the line of the failure of this. If this job fails, I'm a failure. That's how kind of, I, I didn't realize it at the time. That's what I equated. Um, so this was kind of the first sign that there was something wrong inside of me. That there was, as I looked at my wife, um, I was stunned I was scared. I, I looked at her there. I knew I had injured her. Um, and it, it just, I, I was like a little turtle and just pulled into a shell is the best way to sum it up. Um, I knew at that point too, that I was also unfit for ministry. I knew that I couldn't go to church and stand up and start talking to people about how to live for Jesus. And the real sign for me too, was um, my, the leader of the church, the lead pastor, This is what some of Tanya mentioned earlier. The lead pastor thought that I still was. He said, you can stay with it, Adam. And that's when I, that's again, another thing that God began to use. It said, no, I can't. And that again, opened my eyes up to look at my wife and realize she's been right all along. So there has been a big problem here at this church. And, um, What I did at that point, and this is, please hear this. Those of you who are struggling or hurting in marriage, I cannot stress enough how this, this was a hard thing for me. It took me almost two, just shy of two days to do this, but I reached out for help. In fact, the first person I called was my boss at the church. And I said, can we have lunch? He said, yeah. So I sat down, I laid it out with him. Now he told me I could keep the job, but I knew that, no, I cannot keep this job. Then I called two other people for help. And it has been a long journey. Um, a hard journey, and I don't even feel like I'm the same person anymore. Like, as I listen to her share that story, I just think, 
I really did that? Are you I mean, it's just, it's hard for me to even connect with. I don't even feel like the same person. Um, but I'm grateful for what I've learned. And I'm so grateful. Our marriage today, I wish it didn't take those hard places, but because I learned this lesson, I can't worship her. And my identity must be in Jesus. Our marriage today is healthier than I have ever known it to be from our engagement until now. Um, so again, it's been a real joy. And again, it's a transition message. I want to thank my wife. Um, thank you so much, sweetie, uh, for, for sharing. Deeply appreciate that. Would you guys thank her? This was a big risk for her. Now, here's the help, and I want to just kind of make this real practical and, and take it from my story to our story is what I'd like to do. Because I think you may have never have pushed your wife or injured your wife or your husband, but there's, there's, there could be other things in your life that, that are sitting there between you and your spouse. And I want to, uh, as I sat down with one of the men I sat down with was a nationally known figure who actually spent time in jail for spousal abuse, and he's a pastor today. Um, and so he's learned a lot. And so I sat, I reached out to him, um, and I said, I need help. And so he has lunch with me. We had it in East Charlotte over kind of the big skyscrapers overlooking this little diner, little, this kind of a hole in the wall. And we sit down and he, he says to me, he's, here's what he says. He says, Adam, you, the thing that I've learned in my journey is I've got to daily unmask and name the idols. My idols, what is it that I'm living for? What is it I value? What is it that I'm running towards? What is it that, that, that kind of, and then he, he shared this statement and he was straight from his journal. It says this, I can go the distance with blank and know that I'm not a bum. He said, what's in the blank? What's in the blank? So Adam, for you, you can go the distance and you know that you're not a bum if the church makes it, if the church grows, if you become a published author. Maybe for you, it's I can go the distance if I get accepted and I'm no longer made fun of and I'm now on the inside. I can go the distance if I'm a great football player, if I become the CEO or get the corner office or I have five kids that grow up to love Jesus or I can go the distance if, and I know that I'm not a bum with, with what is the blank for you? And he said to me, Adam, he said, I have learned in my journey And he says, if you want help from me, here's the thing I challenge you with is every single day, you make sure to do the hard work and ask the spirit of God that that God has given you because you're in Jesus to say, what is that blank? And if it's anything other than Jesus, you're going to have a problem in your life and your marriage. Greg, the way I would say it is this way. In Ephesians 5.21, had this mutual submission out of reverence for Christ. The picture of marriage there is not of two needy people unsure of their own value and purpose, finding their significance and meaning in each other's arms. But that is what many of us do. Many people that walk down to the front of a church like this to say, I do, they're coming as broken, hurting, sinful people that we all are. And they're looking to the other person to say, I need you to heal me. And they've never stopped and answered the question and really answered it to the core of their being. Who is God and do I worship him? Do I live for him alone? And who is Jesus and is my identity completely wrapped up in him? Or am I looking to this person? I'm going to say I do to, to be that person. And if I, am, if I am coming, not as a whole person, having those questions answered, that spouse that I'm going to take into marriage cannot live up to the pressure. And it will fail. Matter of fact, I would say it this way. Our fears and our inadequacies and our inner barrenness make love a complete and total narcotic. And we're addicts. And we live for the applause, as as Lady Gaga sings about. We so badly, there you go, got a Lady Gaga reference in there. For the young people, they're like, all right, look at that. (laughs) 
was we lay down, as I lay down in bed in Charlotte, North Carolina, as I'd hear the sirens and all the busy uh, stuff on the streets, and my world began to close in on me, and I began to just pray and think at night, and I realized that I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, we're all sinners. I realized that there were things in me that I was afraid of. There was empty places in me that I'm like, boy, what do I do with that? And, and, and there were things that, that begins to happen, and then I look to this love relationship, because again, it does mirror the relationship God wants with us. So it makes sense why we run to it and we say, I need my wife now to fix this and make this whole, but it doesn't work. The illusion of marriage is that if I find my one true soulmate, if I find her, if I find him, then everything wrong with me will be made right. And it doesn't work. What that does is it makes the lover into God and no human being can live up to that. See, what we too often do is we look to our spouses to tell us we are okay, we're, we're whole, we're right, we're good, we're justified. And I said, so when I'd preach and I'd come home, I wasn't the lead pastor, so I didn't preach all the time. But when I did, and I'd come home and I'd walk into the house, and I still do this at times, and, and, and I'd walk into the house, I'd want to hear from Tanya, man, you knocked it out of the park today. And I walk in the house and the reality is she's tied up with a lot of little kids and she equally had a very busy morning. She has a lot going on. And guess what she doesn't say to me when I walk in the door? It's not her fault or her problem. But see, what I'm doing is I want to hear from her, Adam, you're a success. You did well. And when I look to other people, my spouse included, to tell me that I'm okay, that I'm justified, that I'm good, that I'm right, that I've made it, that I'm enough. When I'm looking to them to satisfy that in me and not Jesus, it will kill the marriage. It'll kill the relationship. If you're in school and have friends or whether you're at work and have coworkers, it will kill it. See, the thing that's tricky about this, and this is what I learned with my wife in our journey. Tanya learns about my sins like no other human being ever will. See, and she learns about my sins, not like a physician learns about my disease. So I go to the doctors and I say, hey, I'm having this pain. I have this discomfort. And they lay me on the table. They take some pictures. They do all this other kind of stuff. And they, they diagnose and they rule things out. And they say, okay, I think you have. And they give it to me. That's not how a, or I go to a counselor and sit in their office and they ask diagnostic questions and they probe and they listen and they probe some more and they listen some more. Then they say, and they kind of begin to pull you out to realize, okay, Adam, here's, and, and they, they discover, but that's not how a spouse discovers that you are a sinner, that I'm a sinner. Do you know how Tanya discovers that I'm a sinner? I sin against her. And it's done in an intimate way in the home. In the home, it's more intimate than it will ever be out at school, at work, or here at church. I mean, the, the, the lights are turned off, and it's just me and her, and I'll say and do things that I will never say and do here. And you'll do the same thing. And so here this spouse is, and if I'm looking to her to be the one to tell me I'm okay, and then I sin against her, and now she's hurt, well, guess what hurt people do? Hurt people hurt people. Have you ever heard that statement? So now I hurt her and now she is hurt. And then there's this thing that psychologists call or counselors call silence or violence. And so they're either going to run away and, and kind of hide and, and kind of pull back and get passive aggressive, or they'll come out and just full, full bore fight. And now I'm looking at her and I sense the hurt. I sense the pain. And what do I do? Oh my goodness. I've got a problem. I'm a, I'm a, and, and I'm now my identity is wrapped up in all. Well, guess what? I'm a sinner. Of course I've got a problem and she can't make me right. Jesus can. And if I continue to look to her to make me right, to tell me I'm good, we're going to have a problem when I do sin. I'm not going to then seek her out of humility and say, you know what, sweetie, I've sinned against you. 
please forgive me. Let's walk at peace together. Let's be mutually submissive to the spirit of God and worship together. But it's tough to do when she's the idol that I'm looking to, to make me okay. Only if I love Jesus more than I love Tanya, only if you love Jesus more than you love your spouse, will you be free of this, this need to hear from them, to make you okay. And will you be able to serve your spouse instead? Because see, if you're looking to them to make you okay, you're in a position to receive. I need from you. I need words from you. I need love from you. I need time from you. I need from you so that I know that I'm okay. So it's hard when I'm always looking to receive. It's hard then to turn and give. But the Bible says serve. But it's hard to serve when I'm looking to her to make me whole. So only when I'm free of this can I really live in that mutually submissive place that Ephesians 5.21 talks about and live serving my wife. Only when I find my identity completely and totally in Jesus will I determine to see my selfishness as a bigger issue than her selfishness. We're all selfish, right? Let's just name it. All of us are. Even the best person in this room has a problem with self. Only when I'm filled with the spirit, controlled by the spirit, mutually submissive, Will I live giving love, realizing that when the Bible speaks of love, it measures it not primarily in how much you want to receive, but how much you are willing to give of yourself to someone else. Now maybe, or to sum all this up, maybe to paraphrase Jesus in Matthew chapter 16, when he says, if you want to save your life, you have to give your life. And here's the way I I love, um, I've seen some other authors paraphrase it this way. And here's, here's what I would I think it's great. If you seek happiness more than you seek me, talking about Jesus, you will have neither. If you seek to serve me more than you serve happiness, you will have both. I love that. Mutual submission out of reverence for Christ. There it is. Mutual submission out of reverence for Christ. If you are living to find your complete and total worth in who Jesus is and who he says you are, man, you're going to have both happiness and Jesus. Now to land this plane, you're in Ephesians chapter five, turn just maybe one page. We need to turn it all. Just look across the page to Ephesians chapter three. Ephesians chapter three, my favorite prayer in all the Bible. People quote the Lord's prayer all the time. People talk about the prayer that Jesus prayed before he went to the cross. People talk about the prayer that Elijah prayed that then James talks about, if you're familiar with it in James chapter five and how, what a great prayer warrior Elijah was. And, and, and they had all these great prayers in the Bible. This is my personal favorite prayer in the Bible. This is a pastor praying for the people that he loves and he's been serving and called to serve. Ephesians chapter three, verse 14. It says, for this reason, I kneel before the father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. So I love this. It's like this endearing, we're a family. I'm going to pray for my family and we derive our name from God. Now, verse 16, here's what he prays. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Now, isn't that something we all want? Inner peace, strength, fortitude, Able to go to bed at night knowing I have peace with who I am and who God is, and I'm strengthened inside. 
I love how he prays it now. Look at verse 17. So, now there's a result of this. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And we get into the children's song, deep and wide, deep and wide. There's a fountain flowing deep. There you go. That's more. You're ever going to hear me sing. So... So this amazing, magnificent love, he says, I want you to know this deep and wide and mind-blowing love of Jesus. I want you to know it. Now, he continues in this deep and wide love and to know this love that surpasses. So this love is so big, you can't even get it into your theological boxes and your little truth statements. I mean, this is huge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. I say, amen. That's what I want for me. That's what I want for us as a church. Now, I want to come back to verse 17 because something, I, I, I've read this, 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 this prayer has been my, I remember a, a, a pastor that I respected said he would read this regularly and pray it for the church that he was called to lead. So I've always been, yeah, let's do that. So I, ever since I've been a young pastor, I've made this a prayer of my heart for the people that I care for and I'm called to lead. So, but not recently and since this journey with my wife, verse 17 took on a whole new meaning. Look at verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Let me ask you a question. This might be a little more for the theologically astute in the room, but the rest of you hang with me. Isn't that true of every Christian already? Matter of fact, that same writer, let me give you two other verses. The same writer, Paul, says this. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but who? But Christ lives where? If you're a Christian, if you're a believer in Jesus, guess what you have? You have Jesus in you. So why in the world does Paul then pray so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith? Well, he's, that already is true of you. He is praying for Christian people. Now, here's one more. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Who is where? In you. So you say, what on earth, Paul? Why are you praying this? What is this prayer all about? And here's, here's the beauty of this. Here's the beauty of this. this. This just unlocked for me and it gets me so excited. I mean, when I really think about this, what he is saying is he hopes that they will experience what they already believe to be true. He hopes that they will experience and possess the presence of the love of Christ. This is true of you. This is a theological truth. He's saying, I want you to experience this. I want you to know this more than just you can answer it on a Scantron test and say, check A or B, is God in you? Yeah, sure he is. I want you to experience this. I want this to be a deep part of who you are. And here's where it comes to marriage. When you get to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. I think most of us in this room, me included, do not understand and live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's what I've learned in my journey. And this is why we will be a church that is passionately and unabashedly, and I will not apologize for this. We will be a church that says we are going to every single Sunday proclaim who Jesus is. And every single Sunday, we're going to preach the gospel of Jesus so that you can bring your friends that don't know Jesus to come and hear the message. Because as we constantly are proclaiming the message to people that need to hear Jesus, we get to hear the message and it gets to sink into our hearts as well. Because what I've learned about Christians It is inaccurate to think that the gospel is what saves non-Christians and then Christians mature by trying hard to live according to the principles of the Bible. That is an inaccurate truth. But many of us live there. 
It is more accurate to say that we are saved by believing the gospel of Jesus, that free message of grace, and then we are transformed in every part of our minds and hearts and lives by believing the gospel more and more and more and more deeply. Take it into the deep parts of me, God. Expose the idols of my heart and expose where I am looking to find my identity and my worth and my value. I will will be so bold as to say this. My personal conviction is, come to the counseling circle. Most of the, I'll say most, because I understand there's psychological things that happen that I don't always get my head around, but I'll say most. Most of the problems in life come back to a lack of proper orientation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pathologies and all the problems in the church, spiritual patterns and, and, and junk in my life and individual lives, and ultimately failure in marriage comes back to a failure to think through the deep implications of the gospel of Jesus in my life and my marriage. So many people that come and sit in in a counselor's office, what they're really counseling about, the counselor isn't always giving the answers to, what they're really counseling about is they're looking to something other than Jesus to tell them they are enough and they're okay. Unless a counselor can look at them in the eyes and somehow get them to the place where they are saying, listen, you need to rely on the gospel of Jesus in a practical way and allow that message to sink deeper and deeper into your heart. That counselor will never help you, ever. That's why some of you that say, I'm going to a counselor. I say, who are you going to? Well, I'm going to such and such down in Lancaster. Well, are they a Christian counselor? No, they're not. I say, well, you know what? They may be helping you from a psychological standpoint. I don't want to bash them. They may be giving you some good points and give you a good prescription, whatever else it is that you need from that end. But can I give you the name of someone to go and see that will talk about Jesus to you and help you understand who Jesus is and what the gospel of Jesus is? See, Christians often believe in their heads that Jesus accepts me. This was me in Charlotte. This is going to lead us to the land of plain. As I go back and read my journal, I believed in my head. I could answer the questions. I believe that Jesus accepts me. Therefore, I live a good life. But in my heart and in my actions, I was functionally living out. I live a good life. Therefore, Jesus accepts me. And that's not the gospel of Jesus. It is not the gospel of Jesus. And if you're living that way, your life, this leads to smug self-righteousness. It leads to anger. It leads to anxiety. It leads to self-hatred. It leads to defensiveness. I mean, you know why I couldn't hear my wife back in Charlotte? Because I was too busy defending myself. I was too busy needing to prove that I was right, that I was good, that I was okay, that I was acceptable. I couldn't let her in because I was looking to her to, to be that to me. It also leads to a critical spirit. I I think if you don't grasp the gospel, it leads to racial and cultural ethnocentricity. I think when you don't really allow the gospel to drive deep in your heart, we become a church that says, well, this is how it has to be. We have to sing these songs, dress like this, look like this, have pews like this, have seats. And it's our little culture because we have tried to work so hard to make our culture right. Because I'm depending on it to give me life. And Jesus is looking at us and saying, no. The way you sing your songs, the way you dress, the things you do in church don't give you life. I give you life. So I cannot say this enough how important it is to come back to the gospel of Jesus in your marriage. In your marriage and say, what is it that I find my complete and total identity in? What am I I worshiping? What fills the blank in that makes me enough? And if it's not Jesus, I'm going to hurt the person I love on this earth more than anyone else, my wife. 
So again, Ephesians 5.21. Mutual submission. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Again, that statement that I would end with. Your spouse is not who you worship, but who you worship with. And we worship the living son of God who lived a perfect life, died a horrible death, and is now sitting, raised to life at the right hand of God, looking down at me and saying, hey, God, you know what? I ex- we exchange lives, God. Adam, when he, now God looks at me and says, Adam's righteous. Adam's blameless. And I can look at my wife, who's now backstage, getting ready to come out here and sing. I can look at her and say, sweetie, it's the name we give each other, sweetie. Sorry, I'm not worshiping you. Greatest gift I can give her. I'm not worshiping you, but you know what? Let's worship Jesus together in a mutually submissive way. God, thank you so much. Thank you so much for Jesus Christ. Thank you for the gospel of grace and mercy that has set us free of our inner barrenness and our longing to know, am I enough and our fears and our anxieties and our sin, the things where we know we blow it and we're wrong. God, we don't need to get defensive and fight and, and try and earn approval and hear the accolades from others and, and get pulled into the inner circle. And God, we don't need that because we have you. And then we can live free and then we can serve other people. God, my prayer is for every married person here in this room right now. I just want to pray for every single marriage. And I pray, God, that the husband and the wife in that marriage, both as individuals, are seeking to worship you alone. That, God, when they they come into (laughs) that marriage, they're walking in as whole people. Not looking to their spouse to complete them or to heal them or to make them okay, but looking to you to make them okay. God, for those in this room that are single, I pray for equally, just marriage isn't the only place where we look to find our identity and our value, but God, I pray for the single people, maybe those in this room that are divorced and the divorce hangs over their head like it's some big black mark and you can't accept them now. God, may they, may they just come to you and say, you know what? It's Jesus who accepts me, not what I've done or haven't done. God, maybe the single person that's here right now that, is, that is, craves marriage, they crave it. Because it's what will make them, it's what they need to be happy. God, may they spend time this week just probing deep into their heart and saying, what is it that I need in life? And who is it that makes me happy? And where is my identity found and what do I worship? God, would, would you do work in our hearts? Because God, we want to be a church that's set free of ourselves, that's set free of our selfishness, that has great marriages, and that ultimately lay our lives down. And serve others. And I can only do that. I can only walk towards others if I'm not expecting something from them that makes me okay. I will only risk and serve those around me when I'm not looking to them to say, way to go, Adam. You've made it. Help us to lay our lives down and find our complete and total worth in you, in your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.